Hello, everyone. This is the Skyline View podcast, and we're back with a new series on the political coverage for California's 15th Congressional District. This is the first episode, and we're going to start off by talking to Gus Maddenmall, the only Republican running in the race. Gus, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the program, Zach. Thankful to have you here. Can you talk a little bit about why you're running and who you are? Absolutely. Um, let me give you my political origin story. So um, I was born in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and uh, my father was an immigrant to this country from India. My mother grew up on a farm. So they started at the bottom of the bottom of the ladder, um, grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood in inner city St. Louis. Um, and my father worked three jobs and my mom worked a full time job while raising four kids. So I actually had a lot of unsupervised time growing up um, and I spent it running around the neighborhood with uh, with the other kids. And um, one summer I was hanging out with uh, some of my friends and one of them, Keith, was complaining about having to go to summer school uh, for math. And even at that age, I knew I liked to teach math. I actually manage a private tutoring company here in the here in the Bay Area. That's the business I've built over the years. And uh, but even at that age, I knew I liked to teach math. So I offered to help him. Um, and he looked at me and he said, listen, Gus, it doesn't matter how I do in this class. And that seems surprising to me because at that time, if you failed classes like that, they would hold you back a grade. Um, don't much do that anymore, but they did it back then. Um, and uh, when I sort of protested, he said, listen, you're the only one of us who's going to make it in life anyway. It doesn't matter how I do on, you know, in this class. And the other kids kind of nodded along with that. And that conversation has stuck with me over the years because I mean, we were 12 at the time. And the other kids were already certain that it sort of didn't matter what they did, you know, that and that was my first contact with what I'd call the loss of faith. And um, in that case, loss of faith in the future. And over the years since then, I've seen a lot of different kinds of loss of faith, loss of faith in capitalism and markets as the best way to grow our economy, loss of faith in elections and democracy in terms of the best way to to uh, capture the people's voice. Um, and most tragically, I think, uh, a loss of faith in each other as Americans. And so that's why my campaign slogan is faith in people and faith in America. I want to help restore people's faith in each other as Americans across the political spectrum. Um, and my sort of triggering event for that really was was January 6th. That was the day that I decided uh, to run for Congress um, because I looked on, on my TV and I thought, I see so much energy for helping make this country a better country. Um, which I think is great. America needs that. There's a lot of things that I think could be better, a lot of things we could fix. Um, but what I saw on my television didn't seem like a particularly productive use of that energy. And I thought, I think there's an opportunity to, to give some better leadership um, that will help focus people's energy for improving this country in a better direction. And that was the day I decided to run for Congress. And that's, that's what I've been doing uh, ever since. Can you talk more about January 6th and how that uh, prompted you to run for Congress? Like, did, are you trying to contrast yourself to the national Republican image at all? Well, I don't know if I'd say contrast it with the national Republican image as a goal, but um, my goal is my goal is to provide a way for conservative people to productively and constructively express what I think are some real uh, some real sort of criticisms of where the country has gone um, over the last you know several several years, um, and kind of the potential that this country has to be to be better. Um, you know, when I was when I was watching the the screen the, the TV there, um, they were interviewing two little old ladies and their little red, white, and blue jackets, and I thought, and they were there saying, "We're here to save our country," and I thought, 
look at these two little old ladies. These are like two nice little old ladies from the church I grew up in. You know, they, they're, they're here. They really want to make the country better. You'd hang out in the church basement with them. They tell you stories. You'd have a great old time. These are like wonderful people. Um, but again, they've, and they've been told to go do this as the way to express, you know, again, what I would think are some really legitimate, you know, criticisms about the direction of the country and how to fix it. Um, and I just don't think that that particular um, expression of that was was useful. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do constructively as conservatives to kind of alter the course of, of where the country is going. And I think if we do that, we actually have the opportunity to bring more people from, from the left to kind of work together, that Republicans and conservatives and independents can in fact work together in common cause. That's, that's a central platform, I guess, of my, or philosophy, I guess, of my campaign, that it is absolutely possible for that to, to happen, even today when our politics seems on the surface to be, you know, more toxic than it's been in a long time. So I want to take a step back and note mm -hmm. that you're not, you hold a couple of distinctions. You're not only the only Republican running, but you're also the only person who started running before current Congressman Spears announced she was retiring. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, what was the thought process and what did you do when you found out that Congressman Spears wasn't going to be the person you're running against? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't mind being the, uh, the, the David and the David and Goliath story. Um, it's, it's a great story uh, and it ends, it ends well for David. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't mind uh, filing to, I mean, Jackie is obviously seven and oh undefeated heavyweight in the, in the democratic party. And she's done, you know, when, when she announced her retirement, I issued a press release thanking her for, for her service. I think she did a good faith job to represent the people of this district faithfully. I do think, again, there's, there's the opportunity to take the country in a different direction. Um, and that's, that's what I wanted to do. And part of why I was really excited in particular to run, you know, as a Republican in such a blue district against a titan of the party on the other side, is that I do believe that there is a hunger for some change for a type of politics that can be more collaborative than we've seen um, for much of the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. Um, and if I can win this election, uh, and I'm going to do everything I can to do so, that gives me the platform to say to my own party nationally, look, here's a direction we can go in that has that has real legs because it helped me win in a district that, you know, is 28 points tilted in the other direction. Um, that's an enormous uh, kind of hill to climb, but I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do the work to do it because I believe that I can then use it to sell the party on, on, uh, on this direction, which I think is a good direction for, uh, for America to go in broadly. So did anything change for you when you found out that Spears wasn't going to be running again? Well, for, uh, you know, I, I got, when I woke up that morning, there were a bunch of texts from, uh, from my friends on the East Coast uh, saying, oh my gosh, you, you scared Jackie Spear out of race. And, uh, uh, so I, I poked my wife and I was like, oh my God, Jackie retired. And my wife knows Jackie, she's actually worked with her, um, on some, some initiatives. My wife's been in the nonprofit, uh, sector for a long, long time. Um, and, uh, she's like, you've got to be kidding me. And, uh, and I knew, that I would have about 10 minutes. I'm like, I'm going to be the only person in the race for like 10 minutes. And then it's going to be a free for all. And that is in fact, uh, what happened. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of, there are now a lot of people in the race. It's going to be, it's, it's a party. Uh, a lot, a lot of folks, I think it's going to be a very interesting race. This is, you know, 
this is the first time the seat's been open in 14 years. Um, and uh, and even last time when it was, there wasn't a, there weren't as many people in it. So this is this is a real this is a real time for um, for the people of the 15th district to kind of to get involved, to get engaged in in issues, and uh, to kind of hear some different perspectives on you know where the country can go. And I I hope that uh, you know I understand it's a blue district, but I hope people will will give me a hearing and um, and if they you know if they hear something they like, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to vote Gus on June 7th and November 8th. So you mentioned how Congressman Spears has been here for 14 years. You could go around the room in the Bay Area of all the different congressmen who've been mm-hmm. here for a very long time. Right. Do you, th- If you were to win, do you think you would be in that same scenario or do you think you'd constantly be fighting? Oh, I mean, one thing I, I always say to folks is... Um, it's, voting for me is like the lowest risk thing you could possibly do because... Democrats on number of Republicans four to one in this district. So, you know, I'm running on things like I want to have a universal health care plan. I want it to I want it to be health savings accounts. That's a sort of conservative approach to um, to universal health care rather than a Medicare for all style or single single payer style thing, which is you know that sort of bigger government form of of it. I want to absolutely have a climate change plan, but I want it to be a sort of a jobs and economy focused climate change plan that can use something like carbon capture to, uh, to deliver that, you know, so um, uh, I think we, you know, we have this, um, this huge opportunity to, um, to go in this different direction policy wise. Um, so, you know, so I, I think, yeah, I think that absolutely there's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, so how would you convince <clears throat> liberal or maybe more moderate voters that you can sell a big healthcare plan or a uh, climate change plan to the Republican party? So that's a, that's, I love that question, Zach. Part of it is I'm the endorsed candidate for both San Mateo County GOP and the state GOP. So, you know, and I've, I've stood up in front of very conservative audiences and said, I think we need to have a universal health care plan. There's going to basically enough people in this country want to have a health care plan that is going to be one. And it can either be a very large government style version of it, or it can be a conservative one, which is modeled, by the way, off what Singapore does. Singapore has a health savings account, universal health care plan. They spend one fourth of what we do, um, and they're top three in quality. We're spending four times as much, and we're at or near the bottom of the OECD on every quality measure. So what I want to do is say, they've figured it out. It's a conservative plan, so it's, it's health savings accounts. You control the money, so it's much more personal freedom oriented. They're spending less money, and they have less sort of administrative state. Everything about that is conservative, but they achieve universal coverage, which is conventionally understood to be a liberal goal. That's something that we can work together on. And to kind of circle back to the previous question, you know, what I will do in my first term is work out the details. That's obviously, a, that's going to be a big plan. It's one sixth of the economy is healthcare. So if you're going to re- redo that, um, that's going to take, could take a couple of years to put a plan like that together. But I'll come back to you in two years and say, here's a good faith working plan for how we can achieve universal health care. And yes, absolutely, I can sell it to my party. I've already been doing that um, here kind of at the local and, and state level. And, you know, again, and if I can overcome um, what is, you know, a pretty tough race here for me as a Republican in this district, that's, that's the impetus. I can, I can say this is what I, this is how I won. And there's no reason we can't get behind this plan because it's a conservative plan. And my experience has been when I stand up in front of conservative audiences and explain that to them, they're receptive. I mean, you know, there's obviously some skepticism. A lot of people are like, how are you going to get Democrats to work with you on that? And I'm like, if we come up with a universal health care plan, I bet we can get Democrats to, you know, to work with us on that. Um, that's something they've been trying to do for generations and, and frankly, haven't been able to do. 
Um, the Affordable Care Act, the best you can say about it is it got from 80% to 90% using the same really expensive, low quality um, system that, you know, that already existed. We can do better. We can do better than, you know, 80 to 90% after hundreds of billions of dollars and all the drama. Um, so, you know, let's, let's try that. And if in two years, I don't come back to you with that plan, you just vote me out. I'll be the easiest person to get rid of in politics because I'm, because I'm in a district that is so skewed um, blue. Um, and by the way, when I wake up on November 9th, having pulled off the biggest upset in national politics, uh, I will wake up with a target on my back so big, you'll be able to see it from space, Zach. So um, there is no chance, no matter how long I ever sit in this seat, there is no chance it would ever be a safe seat. Um, which, by the way, also means, you know, in a district that's so blue, as a liberal voter, your vote is frankly expendable to any particular Democratic um, politician because there's so many. There's like, there's so many votes, they don't need any one particular person's vote. But I, as a Republican in this district, will always need every last vote. So who do you think is going to be more responsive to you? You know, the person who, as a Democrat, will then be in the seat for the next 15 to 20, no matter what you do, or me, that will always be in danger of, of losing that seat. I'm going to be very, very focused on listening to people. Um, so, so that's why it's, it's a low-risk thing. And, you, and if I don't deliver on what I said, then just get rid of me in 2024. Easy. Easy peasy. So you mentioned how your message is playing well with Republicans in San Mateo County. Have you mm -hmm. tested that message with liberals and how has that gone? Yeah, you know, I've, yes. The answer is yes. Um, you know, I've gotten now to, as the campaign has gotten deeper, I've gotten to speak to more mixed audiences, um, which is great. Like that to me is, is the, in some sense, the most fun thing because I was, because what I really want is to bring um, liberals and conservatives and independents together to have these kinds of conversations. And the answer is yes. Again, there's, we our politics has gotten to the point where everybody is skeptical that the other side is willing to to listen but in fact everybody's willing to listen it's just everybody believes the other side won't and that's not true um you know again there's of course skepticism about whether you know the two sides can work together but the fundamental idea a lot of people are open to it i mean we've like i said we've we've been doing the we've been doing it the current way for a long long time it hasn't gotten to universal coverage it's spent a whole lot of money and it hasn't achieved much in the way, you know, again, we're at the bottom of the OECD in quality. So lots of people are open to, if there's a better way, let's do it. Um, and that's, that's what I want to deliver. So you mentioned Singapore's MediSafe plan and mm -hmm. how your healthcare plan would be similar to that. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah. So, so what Singapore does is um, everyone gets a health savings account and money goes into that account. The amount of money that goes into the account is somewhat indexed based on um, your sort of level of, of income. So uh, poorer people get more support. Um, so it, in addition to being universal in coverage, it also addresses some of the equity issues that, that are obviously in a, in a society with a, as broad an income spectrum as we have, that's a real issue. Um, and they address that um, by varying the amount of support that goes into the, the health savings account. Um, they also have uh, kind of catastrophic coverage, you know, in, you know Obviously, right. MediShield. Yes, exactly. So, um, so they've they've you know they've kind of what's what's nice about what they've done is they've had a lot of time now to to figure out like a way that actually works. Um, and so, what I want to do is is study study it more because we don't necessarily have to do everything exactly the way that they do it, but they have a working model. And I think you know, in my experience, like when you want to be good at something, like take a look at who who's already doing it and 
you know, the people who are good at it, how are they doing it? Let's look at what, let's study what they do. Let's figure out what we, what we want to emulate, what we want to copy, and let's figure out what we might want to do differently. And we may well want to do something. Singapore is obviously a small country. They, they are spending one fourth of what we do, and there's no chance we're going to be able to, to get away with spending one fourth of what we do because we're a much bigger spread out country. But if we can get it for three fourths, which I bet we could, America's a very, you know, got a lot of ingenuity here. I bet we could do it for three fourths. Saving one fourth of what we spend on healthcare is $600 billion a year. That is a lot of money that we could invest in. We could take a third of that and invest it in rebuilding some schools. Um, I've been in education a long time, and I'm happy to, to make an investment in, in education. Um, we could invest in, again, in things like carbon capture um, and some, maybe some other cutting edge technologies that would get us to that, that greener future without you know, yelling at people about whether they've got a gas stove or not, um, which here on the coast side is an initiative that's been on the table for a while. Um, and then you could do it still have, you know, a couple hundred billion left over. You could give people a tax cut, um, which as Republicans, we obviously love to do. Um, but, you know, but we could still do that while investing in a bunch of other things by just saving all this money on on healthcare. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Singapore is a is a great model to to look at. And we will look at other places, too. Again, I, I want to study what other people are doing as well. But um, but they're the, I, they're in my mind the most the most conservative universal healthcare thing out there. And it's extremely successful. So, yeah, I mean, even with Singapore's healthcare plan, they still have Medifund, which is quasi Medicaid. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they do have a lot of government control or not government control, government regulations. <clears throat> so do you believe that any kind of Keynesian attitude is needed when covering healthcare? Well, I would argue that um, they actually, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's healthcare, you have to have some regulations, but, <clears throat> but they don't actually have to have as many, I think, as, as we do. Um, for instance, um, like one, one simple regulation is you have to publish your prices. If you go to the doctor right now, do you have any idea what that actually costs? I mean, you pay a copay, but do you have any idea what it costs to go to the doctor? The answer is probably not. If you want to have some fun sometime, ask your doctor, what, is, what, is, what does it actually cost for me to see you? And see if you get a straight answer, because you probably won't. Um, they will, in fact, probably look at you strangely, even for asking, um, which is like nothing, no other service that you buy is like that. Um, so, uh, and, that, and because of that, that's part of why, why our healthcare is so expensive. You have no idea what the costs are. You have no real incentive to know what the costs are. Um, and your doctor is just fighting with an insurance company and they're just making up numbers to see, you know, doctor just wants to get paid as much as possible. The insurance company just wants to pay as little as possible. And they're just duking it out. And you hope, you just hope you get some healthcare. Um, that's a, that's a terrible way to do it from a cost perspective. And a lot of that is because you have no idea what the prices are. So that's a, that's a very simple regulation that immediately, if you instituted it would create tremendous, um, downward price pressure. Um, and you obviously, you know, if you're going to have a health savings account, there obviously has to be someone, someone or some kind of entity deciding like which things actually count as healthcare spending. Um, you know, so you can't get away with no regulation. Um, uh, but, uh, but you can, I think, get away with less of it than you have today and certainly less, um, overall in administrative state. Do I think there needs to be, again, so yes, they've got some different kinds of, of programs to address the equity issue. And, you know, and I'm open to studying those. I'm not, I'm not going to just ignore those. Um, I think that 
you know, healthcare for um, underserved populations is an important thing to me. My father came to this country, his whole purpose in coming to this country in the first place was to go to medical school here and then go back to India and be a doctor for the poor. And he's, he just wasn't able to finance his way through medical school and um, actually had to drop into a PhD program because it was the only one that would pay for him to be here um, while he finished his education. And then, you know, he met my mom in a lab and that, as they say, is his history. Um, but that was always a concern of, of his and it's something that I've, I've carried forth myself. Like I want to make sure that, that um, the poor and, you know, and also the middle class are, are really taken care of in this program. I just want to do it with the minimum possible regulation and the minimum possible administrative state. And I think we're nowhere close to that today. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess why, why would a large administrative state put like something under Medicare for all that some of the more progressive Democrats in the race have proposed? Why is that not the answer in your opinion? Well, because that's that, because again, like you know, we've, we've, because if you look at our healthcare spending, we're, we spend more on healthcare already than anyone else in the developed world. We're, num- we're number one in one thing and one thing only, which is the amount we spend on healthcare. That's the only thing we're number one at. Um, on anything like quality, we're at or near the bottom of the, the developed world. Um, and that's with already a whole bunch of stuff like Medicare and Medicaid that you know, serve a non-trivial fraction of the population. Um, so I think it's fair to say the existing system, like extending that system to more people is going to cost a lot of money and create a lot more government for, for a system that already doesn't perform that great. And here's how you know that that's actually like that it will in fact cost a lot more to do that. Um, California, which is obviously a supermajority democratic state, so um, they can pass anything they want at any time without listening to my party at all. Um, they were contemplating instituting a state kind of Medicare for all plan. Um, and they recently yanked that. And they yanked it because it would cost billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to institute it, which would mean a pretty enormous tax hike. And in a political cycle where they're already, the Democratic Party already knows it's in trouble in the midterms coming up, um, they know they're going to lose the House, um, you know, and they're worried about state and local races as well. Um, they didn't want to put front and center a massive tax increase in a state which is already among the highest taxed states in the union. Um, and that would have would have been necessary to create that program. All I'm saying is there is there is an existing way that spends way less money and actually achieves your goal as a Democratic Party, which is to get to universal coverage. I'm just saying, let's do it in a conservative way. That's all I'm saying. Um, and, and we know that it works. So let's try that. And then if, if for whatever reason it doesn't, then fine. Like uh, Then I'm open to a conversation about some other kind of uh, strategy, but um, but we haven't tried this yet, even though it, we know it works elsewhere. So, what would you say to voters who look at places like Canada, the UK, or France, and see centrally planned systems that are working better than what we have here? Sure. So yes, there's obviously there are many different strategies that countries use for universal healthcare. There, you know, there's like a Britain style government owns everything kind of thing. There's Switzerland, which does something like sort of like Obamacare, but actually got to 100% um, coverage on it. Um, the thing is, the thing is, Singapore is doing it for less money than everybody else. All I'm saying is, like, if I had a choice between two plans and one of them costs less money, why would I not choose the less money 
plan. Um, I mean, particularly for a country our size, that is going to be that no matter what is going to be spending a lot of money on on healthcare. Like every every bit you can save is billions and billions of dollars, which we can then put to other priorities, like investing in education, like investing in things like carbon capture that, that will address the climate issue. Every dollar you spend on healthcare that you don't need to is a dollar you can't spend on the other things that the other challenges that we have as a society. So let's let's just be smart about it and you know spend the money wisely. That's all I'm saying. So if you were to spend it on education, where would you like to see federal money going? Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a real argument on the on the infrastructure front. Um, you know, I I grew up like I, said, I grew up in inner city St. Louis, the school that uh, that I would have gone to. Um, uh, the public school there is, you know, in 1986 was a stop on the school to prison pipeline. Um, as near as I can tell, it's still a stop on the school to prison pipeline, um, and it's also falling apart, which doesn't you know is it not going to create an environment where people are going to to do better. I think um, I do, by the way, support the idea of some kind of school choice um, because in my neighborhood, you had to go to that school unless you could afford to go some, unless you had the money to use school choice. Um, And um, I just got lucky because my parents, you know, our house was sort of big enough that they could divide it in half and rent half the house to another family. And the rent from that paid for me and my siblings to go to private schools. Otherwise, maybe I would never have gotten out of that neighborhood. I don't know. Um, none of the other kids in the in my neighborhood who went to that school even graduated high school. So, um, you know, when, what we saw during this pandemic um, was when it became clear that it wasn't just going to be a few months and that we were maybe looking at a whole nother school year potentially impacted, all the families that could afford to move schools did. I've, you know, again, I'm in education. I watched a lot of families that we work with say, this is you know, my kid needs to be in a school and sent their kids to either to private schools, switched out of the public and into the private schools or sent them to other states where the schools were open. Everybody who could afford school choice did it. It's only poor, lower income families that are stuck not being able to engage in school choice. So I I just want to level that, that playing field. And I think you, you know, you need to do it carefully. You know, I think that's, that's again, if I want to come back to you in two years with a plan for that, I want to take the time to make sure that we develop a template that is workable. I want to find a workable template for it, find a red state in all likelihood, if we're being honest, a red state that's willing to try it. And then let's, let's work out the kinks and then let's roll it out to, to other states. Um, I, think you, I think the way that you do it is you don't just flip a switch and everyone has school choice off, off the top. You start at the bottom and you say, we're offering school choice um, to people in like, you know, maybe the bottom 5% of schools, performing schools, like help them get out of the most failing schools. Um, and if some of those schools end up shutting down, I mean, that's, I mean, if it's, if we're talking about the 5% of worst performing schools, I'm willing to make that trade-off if all the kids that used to go to that school are now going to a better school. And I bet all of those families would also be willing to make that, uh, to make that trade-off. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a way to, to both invest in the existing stock of schools while also putting some some kind of um, phased in school choice uh, option on the table that will allow kids who otherwise are sentenced to go to, you know, schools that in many cases have been failing for a long, long time. I mean, 1986 is a long time ago. School hasn't gotten any better, 40 years. So um, 35 years, I guess. So, uh, you know, to, I, I just wanna, I wanna liberate um, families from that, that situation. 
Um, so anyway, so that's that's I think it, a couple areas like that are where I would where I would focus at least initially. Do you worry at all that with a policy like school choice, you end up having the schools that people go to become overcrowded and the resources become stretched? Well, I think one one aspect of the program has to be. Um, you know, the ability to sort of create charter schools. Um, and I think, again, you, you know, you focus the, the charter schools on the areas where, you know, if you're going to flip it on for the bottom 5% of schools, like those areas are the areas where you make it easier to start charter schools that you can create. There's sort of new supply coming online, even if um, we're going to be losing a few of the existing, the existing ones. So that's how I think you, you know, that addresses some of that, um, that overcrowding um, piece. Um, but also like in, in some school, you know, I, I taught a pro bono class up in the mission district. My organization um, works with an co- uh, organization called Mission Graduates that um, it's a nonprofit that uh, identifies high performing um, school, uh, high, excuse me, high performing students in the mission district public school system, gives them after school uh, support in homework and in college counseling. And my organization does a pro bono ACT class for the uh, for the students. And, you know, some years there's only been maybe, you know, 15 to 20 kids in that class and some years there've been 25. And, you know, I can tell you, it's a huge difference teaching a 15 person class versus a 25 person class. So if, again, with, with school choice, if one of the things that happens is a class that currently already has 25 to 30 kids in it, um, which a lot of these schools are, are already overcrowded, if some of those kids are leaving that school and going to other ones, it actually creates less pressure on that school. Now a teacher in that class, you know, maybe instead of dealing with 28 kids, dealing with 21, that's a huge difference um, in terms of the impact you can have on the remaining kids. So I think there are actually some, some benefits to, um, to pull, you know, giving the kids option to come out of that school. The remaining ones will, you know, for the, the schools that continue to, uh, to, to exist, like there'll be fewer kids in there and that'll be, a better experience, a higher teacher to student ratio. Um, you know, and then you, again, you, you make it possible to create more charter schools, which creates more supplies so kids have somewhere to go. So what is your argument against the idea that just putting more funding into the public schools is the correct way to go? I mean, mainly that um, it doesn't see, I mean, I, it's hard to, I, I'm just not aware of an example where that's materially worked. You know, here in here in this district, um, the Ravenswood Ravenswood public public schools are right next to Menlo public schools. There's there's a di- there is a difference in the funding, but it's you know it's like a few thousand per student, which is not nothing. But it's also you know it's maybe ten or fifteen percent um, uh, difference. But the Menlo school system is you know reasonably far up there, and Ravenswood has been you know kind of long way behind where the Menlo school system, even though they're right next door, even though the funding difference is not that huge between them. And that has been the case for, I don't know, 40 years, something like that. So Peter Otaki, who's our Republican candidate in the in Anna Eshoo's district next door, um, grew up in that district. And he said, that's the way it's been since I was a kid. Um, you know, so these, these, the sort of throw more money at it um, solution, you know, I'm, I, by the way, am open to, as, as I said earlier, to investing more in education. Like that can be a part of a solution, but that can't be the only solution um, because it, it doesn't seem to work in and, of it, in and of itself. If you don't change any of the sort of structural things about the way the system works, I, it's not clear to me that more money is gonna, gonna do it, so. 
You mentioned the importance of having a a low teacher to student ratio, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to teach that way. Mm -hmm. In the Bay Area specifically, especially San Mateo, there's somewhat of a teacher crisis because it's hard for them to afford housing here. Mm -hmm. So what plans do you have to have the federal government aid San Mateo County and I guess California in general with our housing crisis? Or do you think the federal government has any involvement here? Well, I think um, getting the federal government involved in that uh, is a long, slow, not necessarily effective process. Um, you know, when I look at what can be done locally, um, because again, the housing crisis is different depending on where you are. Um, you know, it's obviously more acute here. Um, there's an organization called HIP. It's a nonprofit in San Mateo that um, uh, works as a, a partnership with a, with a private fund um, that acquires existing housing um, and then does home shares. So creates home shares for um, lower income folks. So rather than have to, you know, build new housing, which where, you, you know, where are you going to do it? We obviously want to, we have a lot of protected land here. This is, this, the thing is, Bay Area is not that big. Um, and a lot of the land is protected and there are a lot of people crammed into it already. There's 330 million people in this country and about 30 million of them or so. One-tenth of the country lives on a little strip of California's coast. There's really a lot of people crammed in a small place already. So it's, you know, asking, doing something like SB9 or SB10, which was kind of the, the sort of state's approach to that, to just like stampede all over local zoning is sort of forcing, forcing an issue on people, which I don't think is... I don't think it's super consistent with our values as a free country. It's certainly not consistent with you know, our, our approach as a party. Um, I would, I'd rather do is say, let's identify places where we could, you know, do some redevelopment, um, take, you know, take a, an existing strip mall. That's kind of, you know, there, you drive down El Camino. There's some sad strip malls on El Camino. Let's, let's be honest. Let's look at redeveloping some of those into more mixed use, um, uh, kind of uh, properties, and you know, let's allocate some of those units to to lower income folks. I think that's great. I support that, but let's sell it to the local folks as a way. You hey, you're gonna get you're gonna get a you know, grocery store that's closer to you. Maybe you get a movie theater. You're gonna get some better restaurant. You can sell it to people, um, and they'll go along. Like that, there's a one like that just down in just a little south of us in Los Altos, El Camino, and um, and uh, San Antonio. Um, you know, that, that went up, there's like a lot more units there now. It's a much better thriving, uh, corner and it's, you know, it didn't involve like pushing into anybody's neighborhoods or anything like that. That kind of thing can be done. That's a sort of medium term solution. What HIP does is a much shorter term solution, which is take existing housing and then match it to lower income people who are willing to live together. Um, and, uh, and it gives the, you know, HIP also gives them support in terms of like, you know, if they're people who maybe need to get some more education, um, helps them, you know, with job searching and stuff like that. Gets them on their on their feet, and then eventually they can transition out as they, you know, get a more solid income and you know can transition out into other housing. Um, but that's something you can do. That kind of thing you can do right away with existing housing stock. So you don't have to go through a federal process. You don't have to go through a you know a local zoning process. Um, you know, you just take the existing housing and you do that to it. Um, and what I would love to do is more of that because that's a lever you can pull faster. Um, and it, and it's nonprofit and private sector entities working together to pull it off. So it's a conservative approach to addressing um, you know, a, a housing problem. 
and I agree that 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 problem exists. I just again, I want to address it in a conservative way, and I think that that can be done. Speaking of addressing problems in a conservative way, can you mm -hmm. talk more about your environmental plan and your climate change plan? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing to notice about uh, the amount of carbon in the air is that it's just going straight up. Um, you know, Kyoto hasn't stopped that. Paris hasn't stopped that. And the reason is that the developing world needs to develop. And it is the height of hypocrisy for us as a wealthy country that built this great society by burning the crap out of fossil fuels. It's the height of hypocrisy for us to say the developing world, well, looks like we're kind of out of time on the fossil fuels thing. So you guys just got to knock it off. They want to develop and they have the right to develop and they're, and they're going to do it, um, which means the amount of carbon is going to keep going up. Like even if, you know, absolutely let's, you know, I love electric cars. I drive a Prius, you know, I'm going to try to get another hundred thousand out of it, but uh, until the wheels fall off, then I'll buy an electric car. Um, you know, all for, you know, the voluntary movement toward electric cars. Um, but even if the entire U.S. fleet goes electric, it doesn't matter if China and India and Africa are, you know, pumping a lot of, of carbon into the air to, as, they, as they continue to um, develop their economies, which I think that they, they have, every, again, every right to do and should. Um, the way that you solve this, frankly, is... Is carbon capture. We're gonna we got to use good old American ingenuity, which I know we have, um, and uh, solve this problem. We're gonna science our way out of it. That's how we get out of this. We science our way out of it. And again, this is something that I've had a lot of success talking to conservative audiences about because what it really is, honestly, is a jobs and money strategy, because there's a huge global demand for um, commercially viable carbon capture. And we've put very, as a federal government, put very little effort into that at all. The effort's been in other, other directions. Um, and even so, the price per ton of carbon capture is steadily dropping. There are a lot of different angles people are taking on, a lot of different things people are trying. And we could move so much faster down that curve if we made some, you know, some targeted federal investments in that, in that research. And if we do, if we invent it here, then we can sell it to the rest of the world. That's jobs and money. And by the way, you can pull carbon out of anywhere, which means you can set these, these carbon scrubbing uh, factories um, or facilities up anywhere you want, including things like West Virginia, Wyoming, North Dakota. West Virginians don't fight for coal because they love coal. Coal mining is a tough job, um, but they fight for coal because that's their economy and they wanna have jobs and they want to have a place of value in society. What carbon capture offers is a bridge into the future by saying, we're gonna put these, these facilities in your area. So these will be jobs for you. And it'll be a really important um, role that it'll be playing in our society going forward. So you get the economy and you get the, the sort of dignity of knowing that you have a valued place in society. It's the transition into the future for these areas that otherwise get left behind as we, you know, if we go down a purely democratic party road of basically demonizing oil and gas and coal companies and just trying to shut down fossil fuels without some kind of replacement for those people. Um, that's what carbon capture offers the way to square that square that circle. And we absolutely can invent it here if we push hard enough on it. Um, so so that's that's why for me, um, the carbon capture strategy is kind of a central plank in, uh, you know, in any kind of climate strategy. And again, I'm fine with, you know, I, like I said, I drive a Prius and I will eventually buy an electric car. Like that stuff is fine. But, um, but, you know, initiatives like 
you can't have a gas stove. If you're trying to cook a nice sauce on a gas stove, like that's like, hey, are you saying on an electric stove? Like that's that's impossible. I don't want I don't want the federal government in my personal appliance uh, buying decisions, and and whatever impact that's going to have on the amount of carbon is so small that it's like not worth. It's not even worth it. It's not worth the trade-off and freedom. Um, so let's let's focus on on what we you know what, on much smarter strategies that again offer that the kind of squaring of the circle to say there's a pathway into the future for for um, fossil fuel companies and and the areas that depend on them um, through through carbon capture. I think most people would agree that focusing on carbon capture and having it being part of a platform is important. But I think a lot of people would also say that you need to do more than just carbon capture. If you sure. take oil and gas and fracking companies, they do a lot more than just produce carbon, right? You have oil spills and you have runoffs and like the West Virginian coal miners, they those aren't great jobs. Mm -hmm. So do you believe the federal government has any responsibility into providing better jobs for West Virginian coal workers? Well, I think the, I mean, I think the carbon capture jobs will be, will be better. Um, you know, the, um, the thing is, Fossil fuel companies know that in the long run they can't compete with renewables. Like, for instance, let's let's deal with coal specifically. So, for coal-fired electricity, the way it works is you go to, go to West Virginia to one of those beautiful mountains. I don't know if you've ever been to West Virginia, but the way it's, it's a beautiful place. You go take one of those beautiful mountains, you blow the top off of it. Uh, about one percent of the rocks you just blew out are actually usable coal. The rest of it, now you got a great big mess which you dump in the very beautiful little river that runs right next to the to the hill. Um, now you got a bunch of rocks, you got to load onto a train. The train's got to go however many hundreds of miles to wherever your coal burning facility is. Then you got to take a bunch of rocks and you got to stick them in an oven and burn them. This is the 21st century of burning rocks is what we're talking about here. Um, to generate heat, to create steam, uh, heat which you're going to use to heat water to create steam. Steam's going to turn a turbine, which through the magic of Faraday's law is going to spin a magnet in the thing and create electricity, which congratulations, now you have electricity at a plant, which is nowhere near your house. And now you got to run that electricity on wires, however long you got to do that um, to finally get to your house. That's how coal works. Solar, I stick a panel on my house and electricity falls from the sky onto my roof. Like there's just no way that coal in the long run can compete with that. And the market will eventually take care of this. And it's already, like already, like, you know, the cost of solar and a bunch of the other things have become roughly competitive with, um, with coal and natural gas. Like the market's gonna take care of that. It's gonna take care of it relatively soon. Again, what carbon capture offers is that, that little window of time we need um, for the market forces to take care of it. And then we don't have to demonize these companies that employ a lot of people. Um, the fossil fuel industry employs a lot of people. There's a lot of, a lot of actually um, good science and engineering know-how in these, in these companies. Um, they're smart people um, and they will make the transition into the future if we offer them a path to, um, to do so. We don't sort of have to just like go after them as like horrible companies or whatever, whatever. Um, you know, I, you know, obviously we need to work with them and we, you know, there may be times where we need to say no, like I don't want to drill in the Arctic national wildlife, whatever. I, I don't think we need to go that route. Um, but, um, but at the same time, I don't think it's right to demonize these companies that, again, were instrumental in building the society that we've built, um, that are full of smart people and that know they you know, ultimately are going to have to make a transition into a, into a future because they know they can't compete with renewables in the long run. So we just, we just need a little bit more time and carbon capture offers that time. So... 
I was, I want to know, does nuclear power have any part to your climate plan? Uh, do you believe it's something we should go after? Yeah. So, you know, the one thing that I think when people think about nuclear, a lot of times they think about like, you know, Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and stuff like that. The, um, so I have a background in physics and math, so I like to read a lot about, about that kind of stuff. And modern nuclear, you can, they're much smaller, um, they're dramatically safer, um, you know, you can you, there, absolutely. I think nuclear is is part of the shorter term solution. There's a lot of research being done. I would absolutely, as a as a congressman, be willing to like pump some money into fusion uh, research, which is going on and is um, is pretty close to some some major breakthroughs. Um, and fusion, if we can achieve that, that's another one that we can absolutely sell to the rest of the world, and that is you know instantly limitless clean uh, energy. Um, so you know. I'm happy to uh, to make some targeted investments in that in that as well. But we've got nuclear, which is fission already today. The the plant designs are much smaller; they're much safer. Like absolutely, let's let's do that. I'm I'm all for pulling that lever as well. So, when you get to Congress, <laughs> what effort will you be making to work with the Democrats as well as work with some Republicans that you might not agree with? Mm-hmm. I, you know. I'm always willing to talk to anybody. Um, again, like part of part of what I hope to do is be a more. I'm I'm more collaborative. I'm not a I'm not a bomb thrower. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody anytime. Um, I one of the things about uh, being in politics, if should you ever decide to run, is uh, people are always sending you things where like sign our pledge that you'll never do this or that you'll always do this or whatever and. Uh, you know, my, my strategy on that is I don't sign anybody's pledges um, because for me, all the options are always on the table. I'm always willing to consider anything um, and I'm always willing to talk to anybody. Um, you know, if there's a good faith conversation to be had, I'm happy to, to have it. I um, mean, I'm happy to consider any policy direction at any time. As a conservative, I have obviously some preferences about what policy should look like, but, um, but I'm also willing to make a deal. I'm willing to horse trade on some stuff. So, you know, you know, and and a lot of the, again, a lot of the policies that I'm talking about are use conservative methods. But if we did them, would actually achieve what are conventionally understood to be liberal goals, like progress on climate change, like universal health care. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm I'm, oh, I'm happy to sit down with uh, with anyone. And by the way, um, there have been a lot of a lot of liberals that have supported my campaign. Um, including I have a button, a donation button, which is $199 because that is the maximum you can donate to a federal candidate without your name going public. And $199 is the most common uh, donation amount to my campaign because I have a lot of, lot of liberal friends who are like, I really love what, what, you're, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I, so I'm going to donate to your campaign, but no one could ever know that I donated to a Republican. So I'm just doing the $199. Uh, and uh, and that's, you know, and I'm happy to, you know, I, I get it. I understand why, why you're doing that, why you don't want anyone to know. And that's fine. Like, I, it's great. Um, but, but that's a lot of, a lot of liberal folks have, uh, have contributed that way. And that's, again, like tangible evidence that, um, that there is support across the spectrum for, for what it is I'm trying to accomplish. So do you have any uh, closing remarks that you'd like to state for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Again, I, I really, I you know, as a, as your congressman, I will absolutely take a leadership role in being collaborative in sitting down with people across the entire political spectrum, both to my left and to my right, 
um, to figure out what is the best path forward for us on all of these kind of big challenges that, um, that we're confronting, including you know, healthcare, climate change, um, growing our economy. Um, and a lot of, again, a lot of the plans that, um, that we've talked about today are plans that yes, they use conservative methods, but they also would achieve um, what are again conventionally understood to be liberal goals. So I think there's a there's a real path there for um, Republicans, Democrats, independents to all work together. And you know, as as I said earlier, um, this is a it's a low risk thing to vote Gus um, because if I don't deliver on the things that I talked about, you can just get rid of me in two years, and I'll always be the easiest person in Congress to get rid of um, because I would be in a seat that's so skewed in the other direction. So all I'm saying is. If you heard something today that made you say, wow, I actually, I like that. Um, and I kind of want to, I'm thinking about voting for him, but, but he's a Republican. You know, the, vo the voice in you that says, oh, I kind of want to vote for him. That's your heart talking. And the, but he's a Republican is your head talking. Vote your heart on June 7th and November 8th. Give me the opportunity to show you. And in two years, I'll come back to you and say, here's what I was able to accomplish. And if you're like, that's in fact what he said he would do, then re-up me. And if I don't deliver, then get rid of me. And I'll, again, always be easy to do. Always be able to get rid of me. This is a very blue district. You can have a Democrat anytime you want. So give Gus a try. Vote Gus June 7th and November 8th. Check me out at gusforcongress.com. That's Gus with the number four, gusforcongress.com. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you today. Thank you so much for being here. For our listeners at home, we will be continuing our coverage of the California 15th race, and we will have another episode coming out in the coming weeks. We Thank you so much for watching.